Hi everyone, Chance here. Before we start this week's show, Noah and I just want to encourage you to support Black Lives in our movies, and more importantly, in our communities. This week, instead of spending the money you would have on tickets or popcorn or a new streaming service, consider joining us in making a contribution to organizations that promote justice and parity. If you're a listener with an interest in books, Noah's been making donations to the City College and Association of Author Representatives Internship Scholarship, which allocates resources and funding to students looking to start their career in publishing. As for me, I'd love you to support Don't Shoot PDX, a black activist and advocacy organization that's been doing incredible work to stifle and then permanently end police abuses. And because of our Nebraska connection, we'd encourage you to honor the life of slain Omaha resident James Skurlock and consider a donation to his family. All links are in our bio and on our website, berealpodcast.com. Finally, if you're not in the publishing world, or you're not a Portlander or a Nebraskan, or you've already donated what you can this month, seek out the leaders and organizations in your community who've been doing the work to protect, support, and elevate black lives both this summer and in some cases for years and years. Be of service to them. Thank you all. Enjoy the show. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real welcome one and all to be real it's a movie reviewing and reappraising podcast my name's chance solemn pfeiffer and i'm noah ballard no, we're here today for a one-movie special episode. We're talking about Spike Lee's To Five Bloods, which just came out on Netflix this past weekend. How are you feeling about it? Yeah, I mean, it was it was nice to have a serious, like, non-garbage action movie be released to streaming uh, that I didn't have to turn off after 20 minutes of sh- from sheer exhaustion. Uh, and this is an extraction subtweet, is it not? This a hundred percent, and that okay. horrible Michael Bay movie from some months ago. Oh, Six Underground. Was that a quarantine movie, or is all of time just folding in on itself? Anything before today was a quarantine <laughs> movie. Wow. Well, congratulations. Always been, <laughs> I've always been in this apartment. You've always been in your apartment. That's true. Uh, I think it was like the beginning of maybe it was like early February, early to mid February. Who can even recall? Why Shit are we man. even talking about it? <laughs> well, yeah, right. Uh, we're here to talk about a far better filmmaker than Michael Bay. Spike Lee, this is his 23rd uh, feature length, like fictional movie, in addition to scores of documentaries. Um, you know Spike Lee. We've done a whole Spike Lee episode before. He is the acclaimed and influential American director of Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, 25th Hour, Inside Man, and... 16 other movies (laughs) incredible yeah some of them very serious works that sort of challenge american society and some of them are just like the american old boy remake (laughs) i would say that one of them is the american old boy remake (laughs) you're right only one of them can claim to be the american old boy remake (laughs) yeah that's a strange one um but this movie i think fits in very clearly with uh, actors, times, and tones and issues that he cares about, especially coming out of uh, Black Klansman. I think this movie is also 
so funny because it's clearly and quietly in conversation with Oliver Stone, I think in a lot of ways, For sure. um, namely the intro, uh, where we go through the newsreel footage to sort of put us at the spot in history that we need to understand, uh, including, uh, Spike Lee's own sort of editorial touch with the white house, which I thought was so funny in that the shot of, um, was it Nixon? Yeah, that's true. So the setup for this movie, we'll get a little ways into it and we'll give you a spoiler demarcation as we tend to do on these minis. Um, but this is a return to Vietnam movie for four black veterans played by the great Delroy Lindo, who we're going to talk about, I imagine, a ton. Um, you've got Clark Peters, you've got Isaiah Whitlock Jr., and you have Norm Lewis. Uh, the last, the middle two guys there, Clark Peters and Isaiah Whitlock Jr., people would know from The Wire, and Noah now knows them from The Wire. He's all psyched up about it. Um, yeah. Norm Lewis is a stage actor primarily, um, but they play four friends who served in the same unit uh, in Vietnam, and they had lost their compatriot and sort of spiritual advisor of sorts um, as black men in Storm and Norm, who uh, is played by Chadwick Boseman in these flashbacks. And uh, to go find his remains, and also maybe there's this big box of gold that has something to do with why they're going back too, they go back to present-day Vietnam as old men and venture into the jungle to excavate their past. Black GI. Is it fair to serve more than the white Americans that sent you here? Nothing is more confused than to be ordered into a war to die without the faintest idea of what's going on. I dedicate this next record to the Soul Brothers of the 1st Infantry Divisions. Be safe. Lest you think that these are not like formidable old men, like they've really reached like the peak of their old man's strength in a lot of ways. Like the, the, the implication is that they're all, if they were all like 18 to 22 in the late sixties, early seventies, then like they're 70 year old men, uh, looking for gold in the jungle. Yeah. And it's incredible how, I guess how quickly they break down, but how like they just didn't realize that they were this old doing this weird sort of physical thing. That's a funny way to put it. I think Delroy Lindo is 67 and he could absolutely out hike either of us any day. Oh, yeah. But yeah, comparatively, like how quickly Clark Peters like bad hip becomes an issue. It's like, did you guys not think about what it would take to carry this gold with your hips and joints? Yeah. Some other people who show up in this movie before we dig deeper into what it means to Spike. Um, Jonathan Majors, who you may remember from Last Black Man in San Francisco, shows up unexpectedly. He is the Do Lindo character, Paul. It's his son. Um, they meet some uh, white nonprofit minesweepers, played by uh, Melanie Thierry, Paul Walter Hauser, and oh, uh, uh, Richard Jewell himself. That's right. And uh, Jasper Pakkonen. Um, Jean Renault makes an appearance as a Does former colonizer of Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and seemingly a current colonizer of Vietnam. Yeah, more or less. 
So what do you think of... So this is one of those movies where there's like the now story and there's the 50 years ago story. What is your initial feedback or uh, impression of how balanced these two narratives ultimately become? I think, unfortunately, you you brought us into my, what might be my least favorite part of the movie. I think the newsreel footage does a lot. I think some of Spike's flourishes of uh, Hanoi Hanna, who a, was a real figure, a North Vietnamese broadcaster who would read propaganda to black American GIs, um, but also the propaganda was not incorrect about what America was having them do. Uh, I think those things are very effective. I think the straight up battle flashbacks um, and kind of the weirdness of Chadwick Boseman talking to the old men who play themselves. um, The battle stuff just doesn't do that much for me. Like Spike Lee as an action director is not necessarily something I needed in my life. Well, they're also, and we were texting about this a little bit, but they're also kind of intentionally goofy, right? Because they, in like in the opposite of the Irishman kind of way, like they make no apologies of ca- like by casting these seventy-year-old men, like also as the memory of their younger selves. Right. So it's it's hard to buy into the like gritty realism or whatever of these epic battle scenes around the chassis of this airplane when it's like. It's a 67-year-old Delroy Lindo, like with a machine gun next to a Chadwick Boseman who, I mean, still looks older than 18, but like is clearly like not in the same generation as this person. I think on a figurative level, it and we talked about this too over text, that it that it works on a figurative level because uh, these men are not able to let go of this time. There is not separation between past and present. But on a literal level, you run into that Spike Lee thing where like I he's one of my favorite directors. Um, but you run into that thing of like, Spike, you made me watch that for 20 minutes. You know, I still had to watch that, right? <laughs> and that's the battles for me. Yeah. And they've, they're they're kind of in that goofy Netflix action movie, like blood squirting everywhere, but still not looking that realistic kind of way. Um, Did you have a thing yeah. at all where sometimes I think he gets so gleeful about getting to do his reinterpretation of like straight ahead action movies that sometimes they feel those scenes like almost feel comedic at the wrong times a hundred percent i think that's what i'm getting at like both with the weirdly cast old men shuffling around and then with the sort of comedic undertones of people like getting the jump on somebody else in certain cases uh especially in the like climactic tragic action scene uh the you know the Viet Cong sneaking up the side of the plane like it's almost yeah it's cartoonish parts of this movie that work much 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 better for me is just the initial hangout of the four men reuniting in this hotel lobby in Ho Chi Minh City there is just instantaneous chemistry between them you kind of instantly understand that they have all shared something, but like just the way they're dressed, the way they carry themselves, they're also all so different. And yes. there's like a thing, uh, their first night out, uh, and it's sneakily not the spike dolly shot that you're always waiting for, but it's just the four men dancing toward the camera, filling the whole frame to Marvin Gaye's got to give it up. It right. is unbelievable. 
Yeah. Well, I think it is the Spike Lee tracking shot thing because they're not moving their legs. The room's just moving around them. I think it's the greatest of all Spike Lee tracking shots. Okay. After further deliberation, I'm going to concede that this is a version of the thing that we're talking about. It, it's just pulling at a speed that doesn't disorient. I know, you're wrong. Uh, is it too much to say that this is like a career performance for Delroy Lindo as the no. MAGA hat wearing, build that wall, Vietnam vet? No, it's almost unprecedented. I couldn't really think of an example of somebody who, you know, for 15 years there was like an omnipresent character actor who would always be like the sixth person in a movie and you know throughout for through so many spike lee movies um but also you know get shorty and gone in 60 seconds and all of these like big budget 90s movies you're like god del Rolando, love him and to have him at almost 70 years old just like get a get a movie where he is so good and so intriguing and the movie knows it that like the other people just fall away out of this movie for it's sure incredible it's amazing because he's like sort of annoying at the top in the way that people like this are annoying and you're not used to really, or at least I wasn't used to seeing him like as a morally complex character. So it almost takes time to then like re fall for him. And then he has this absolutely wonderful scene where he's trying to like put a rope around another character to pull them off a fucking landmine. And like, he just goes for this like when the going gets tough like politics aside like everything's fine like we'll just do this thing and come together and then 10 seconds later he's like you're all dead to me i'm gonna kill you like we're here for the gold and we're here for our personal enrichment it's interesting too because i heard um the writer justin charity talk about how much he liked the fact that he is a Trump supporter is so often used to simplify people in our times and it makes his character way more complex, um, which is true. And, you know, he also, it's a, just a stunning performance of, you know, PTSD writhing its way to the surface of your person. Um, there's great, so many great like uh, boating scenes that mimic Apocalypse Now, but they're kind of like going in through these you know, these vestiges of tourism on their way into the jungle. And there's a scene where this vendor is trying to get him to buy a chicken. And you just watch uh, the Paul character over the course of 60 seconds go from being like, no, man, I don't want it. No. And he starts to laugh because it's so ridiculous. Like, doesn't know me, no, in any language. And basically, like, his trauma just comes rippling out of him in this disgusting way. And it never, it never goes back in for the rest of the movie. No, it hides. Um, but yeah, I think you know that in like the first scene where, you know, the kid whose leg has been blown off by like a still active after 50 years landmine uh, comes into the bar and is like begging. Like he can't, he's like, get this guy away from me. And right. you, you kind of know then that if, if these people push him, like he's going to go back to who he was 50 years ago. And, you know, these people are the enemy and drawing those, those dividing lines. And this is something that I, I really like about this movie. I mean, sometimes when Spike does the the newsreel footage, which is about five minutes at the beginning of this movie, I I have a sensation of like, I get it, man. I got it. I got it. But I also think that the notion of um, 
trusting your audience, especially like the amount of people who will see a Spike movie, Netflix is different when you consider how wide his audience might be and Spike standing as one of the, one of, if not the most prominent black American filmmaker um, in Hollywood history. It's just like, I don't know if you can always trust your audience. And so sometimes he's very forceful about connecting these things and making sure you understand. But in this movie, I also kind of like the way it, you're, I, I'm really enjoying the complexities of this hangout of like, will these go back, guys go back and, and find the peace and or the gold that they're looking for? And I think the purpose of that newsreel footage at the beginning is just like, no, because they're taking a tourist trip in a graveyard. Like this whole thing is just built on death on both sides, on any side of yeah. that war. Absolutely. And like I said at the top, like I really do like Spike Lee's editorializing around some of these like bigger moral issues. Like I love the fact that he labeled Donald Trump as President uh, Bone Spurs Draft Dodger, which yeah. is incredible. Yeah, it's true. And it's funny that uh, down the stretch that the MAGA hat is basically... So there's like one pistol and one MAGA hat in in all thriller movie logic you're like where's the gun who's got the gun where's where is it and in this one you're like who's got the maga hat and what does that mean right now any other like non-spoilery things we want to say i mean i think you know we're harping on delroy lindo but i think all of the the performances in this uh, from all the central guys there especially the jonathan majors role like figuring out you know what it means to have this crazy person as your father and like what does that mean and also just like i love so much their interaction around just like the legacy that he's supposed to uphold you know with going to morehouse and like being able to do almost miraculous things just because he has subscribed to the ideal you know educated black man which is really interesting um and then the way that like each person on on either side of them, like especially Norm Lewis sort of coming to the realization that even though he financed this trip on his black card, he's actually just totally broke because he's been looking for something, you know, and finding success, but never be, being able to like really like put his feet in the, in the earth and stay there. Um, and then the Clark Peters, like almost another rip from the headlines kind of statement about how, you know, old people are really taken out by opioids. Yeah, that's true. And uh, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. is there for some incredible comedy for the most part. I mean, this for the is most the most part. Yeah. He has the, his own like underlying drinking problem too. Um, but yeah, he's, he's really the, act- the moral rock. He is, of course, is the actor who gave us shit. Um, but you know, much longer than a, that. A much longer and a very long one in in this one. But also just like has some lines. I wrote down uh, at one point when he's particularly pissed at Paul Delroy Lindo. He's just like, when did you turn into a grade A first rate certified old tired and grumpy motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, old That's tired and crazy motherfucker. Sorry. Um, the John- Let me turn back to Jonathan Majors real quick. He does a great job of just being so upset and gutted by how his dad is able to compartmentalize fatherhood. Like there are moments in this movie where it's just like, I'm your dad. And then as you said, moments later, where he's just like, I'm not your dad. And as a parent, you shouldn't be able to do that. You know, he even has a line where he's just like, no, 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 fuck this dad shit. And that's very disturbing and jonathan majors is great 
at, um, you know, wearing, wearing that pain on his face. For sure. And it's nice to see too, that, I mean, he's, he's a chameleon in his own right. Like he, this performance has so little to do with his one is like the debut that I think we saw in last black man in San Francisco. So different. Whereas this one, he's like pretty sexy. I mean, he kind of starts as like goofy, nerdy entitled millennial who's getting balled out by like the older guys. But then when he's in the jungle with the best of them, uh, he pulls off something close to sexy. And the, I mean, I love that scene in the, in the bar together where the French guys being like, you Americans are all the same and you've elected a reality TV president, yada, yada. And he just has this incredible speech about how he claims no responsibility for Donald Trump. And he cannot be condemned for that. He does. It's great. Um, Defy Bloods is on Netflix, so from now on we're going to talk about spoilery stuff. It's a Spike Lee movie. Whether it's my favorite Spike Lee movie remains to be seen, but it's probably on your television right now waiting for you. Go watch it. Gentlemen, welcome back to Vietnam. Look at that sound. You're the man in all his glory. Who was that guy? That brother was the best damn soldier that ever lived. Can I start with some things that I thought were a little easy in this movie? And then we can get into more of like the cooler nuances of the like exciting things that happen. Do it up, man. Two things that I thought were easy were Clark Peters having a half Vietnamese daughter that he just like never knew about. And also why is she only 30 if he was not, if he was there 50 years ago? The other thing that I thought was a little easy, and I mean, they even reference it in this movie, the fact that this one owes a lot, not only to Oliver Stone, but to um, like the Chuck Norris and Sylvester Stallone Vietnam movies that attempted to like go back and uh, re-delegate what had happened in those wars. This movie loves like the landmine bit. It's, I mean, the landmine bit was played out when it came to, um, uh, what's that fucking Ben Stiller movie? Tropic Tropic Thunder. Tropic Thunder, right. That in this one, anytime they are walking in the jungle anywhere, you're like, at some point, somebody's going to get their fucking bottom blown off. And somebody does. That's the, that again is the comedic part that like just doesn't work for me. Like as soon as Norm Lewis is just like, he's walking backwards. Like, well, you don't walk backwards because you're about to get blown up. It's, it's way too obvious. And and so obvious. You're like, Spike Lee must know this is obvious. Right. So I think he thinks it's like a little bit funny. Um, yeah, and I think that's, you know, there are definitely like deeper, there are Treasure of the Sierra Madre references in here, which is, oh, I think sure. he said is his favorite movie, but like, yeah, the fact that it kind of opens the door for the occasional Tropic Thunder comparison is, I think, unfortunate. It is unfortunate. Um, it even reminds me of like when Samuel L. gets it in Deep Blue Sea, where like the camera kind of takes like a, a nauseating <laughs> angle on him before the shark comes through the, the water hole. Um, and then I got to tell you, man, the fucking like body suit that's like squirting blood out of his major arteries like five or six times while while he's delivering his like final words is 
like it's campy. It, it it's not like affecting or arresting. It's not like in Black Hawk Down where they're like pulling half that guy's body off the road or something after the yeah. IED goes off. Like this is like somebody's on the other end with like a chicken uh, turkey baster just like scoring the blood out. I'm 100% in agreement. And if that were not followed by what I would argue is the best scene in the movie, it would be a way bigger problem. But for the, sure, I the, think that it is saved. The Edwin Moses rope scene is just unbelievable. Um, right, it's worth the cost of admission just for that scene. I almost think that the climax of the movie pales in comparison to that scene. I would agree, um, and it's also it's just a it's a great justification for why Spike keeps intercutting like these photos of real people and this idea of like you lost a life but if you can save a life in war or in a fight so long and so unjust like that saved life is worth a lot and the idea that that sort of runs through a lineage of black greatness and runs through this thing of collaboration and runs through the best part of what the bloods did together uh in an unjust war is uh sure. very uplifting yeah and i think he's also having fun too spike lee uh with the idea of this myth making that is attached to their very fragile masculinity right like there's even a part like as the movie kind of becomes or the plot becomes more and more unhinged uh where someone talks to delroy and says like i know you claim to have conversations with our lost buddy like every day but you understand that he wouldn't agree with you with the way you're acting right now and delroy's like i can't hear that i can't hear that and it's like, so you've you've built this guy up as this almost mythological figure of your own internal morality, but like you're ignoring one of his biggest teachings. I mean, I think that also speaks to maybe Spike Lee's take on religion and how it's used for perverse ends as well. This brings me into wanting to talk about how the movie uses Marvin Gaye. Um, mm. Because it's basically four or five songs it's a giant swath of the what's going on album um and different versions of it that are like seeded throughout the movie and one of the incredible things about that record is the it instantly evokes background noise and people's conversations and black gi's coming back to american cities and you know when marvin gay says what's going on or what's happening brother the there are people in the background of the record like talking at him in the studio or talking to each other and there's a great cue where they basically just um do some of the call and response and do the lyrics to what's happened brother and the cue becomes diegetic like these guys are just singing it walking down the trail and it's playing and then for the movie to play a vocal only version of what's going on and then end with delroy doing acapella god is love is to strip every bit of community out of a famously communal record i mean he is just he's as much of a ghost as norm he is just marooned in time and space. Absolutely. Great point. Do we think this movie suffers from the Netflixian curse <laughs> of being... I knew you were going to bring this up. Because it because they have too much money, it allows a certain indulgence by certain A-list filmmakers. Um, I want to say yes, because, like, the... You know, it's, it's... In any, like 
second tier spike movie which i think this is for me it's like a 75 25 proposal it's like the 20 it's like why is that 25 in there <laughs> why is that here um, but nobody else was gonna make this like he said basically said that netflix was his was his last stop sure. and i think probably what they spent the bulk of that 40 million dollars on was shooting on location in vietnam which if that's my trade-off for like weird cgi and like digital aspect ratio tricks like i guess i'll take it i just couldn't get it out of my head that this would be a stronger movie if there wasn't the flashback part of it it would be. if it was it's just undeniable. these guys going down the rabbit hole together and you kind of just have to infer the rest um and then it's you know only a two-hour movie and maybe it doesn't feel so scatterbrained towards the end. Um, what do you think of that climactic shootout? I guess there's two of them. It's when they get approached by the Vietnamese guys who claim the gold is also theirs. And then the John Renault uh, double cross. Weirdly. And I, I like I care so little about those scenes that they don't even feel like the climax to me. The climax of the movie is Delroy Lindo direct to camera being like, you're not going to kill Paul. Bathe me in that lymphoma herbicide agent orange shit. You don't get to decide who kills Paul. (laughs) And like when he basically just turns into, to King Lear, you know, blinded King Lear in the rain. um, that, That to me is the, the high point of the movie. It's, for sure so compelling yeah i agree i do like though the interaction leading up to the shootout between the vietnamese guys uh and the bloods which sort of talks about like who deserves reparations here i mean if you have this pile of money and it's you know either these guys who have been mistreated by america for 400 years or these guys that were mistreated by america 50 years earlier but like more sort of specifically who like deserves the pile of money and what is the morality of of between potentially splitting it. And there's just some like funny movie lines in there when they ask him if like they're official Vietnamese army guys and they say, we don't need no stinking badges, which is just like a funny throwaway. Um, But yeah, I thought that was such a, an interesting because ultimately their, their quest is immoral. Like, whatever is over there is it's done. Like whatever scars and bodies and gold bars you left in Vietnam 50 years ago, your crusade was an immoral one. And like, you, you should not go back. What, how are you going to, how are you going to land on this? Oh, let's first tell people how we rate movies on the show. On be real. We rate movies in two categories, good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. 
Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. Like I said, there is that big 25% that dissatisfies me. I think this is like a pretty good movie, pretty powerful movie. Um, I rewatched it this weekend, um, trying to like look for those extra dimensions. Like I didn't get the Marvin Gaye stuff until the second time of what that was doing. You know, there, there's there's so much depth going on in here because Spike Lee just wants to do everything. Um, yeah. And that's always been his impulse and it can always go wrong. Um, so yeah, this movie uh, is not top flight Spike for me. I think there are six, seven, eight movies of his that are markedly better. Um, but I'm still going to give it a good good, I think. I think it's a bad good for all the reasons we both agree on. Um, I, I think it's a movie that's worth watching once. And if you, at a later date, were to round up some like interesting, not quite about Vietnam, Vietnam movies, uh, this would be an interesting place to land. Um, but I, I do think it makes too many choices. It's a little bulky in the middle and i think it could easily be a more streamlined almost like self-contained like play of a movie of just these five guys in in the jungle i think that's totally fair but check it out it's definitely like on a roku or you know smart tv near you Uh, did you see black linesman i have not seen that yet but it's on hbo this month nice um yeah, I think it's better than Black Klansman, personally, which I don't know oh, if that's wow. a if that's a uh, controversial opinion or not. But this will be an interesting one to see how the Academy reacts to it. Especially, I mean, this whole year is going to be bizarre for what right. awards are going to then look like. Um, but I wonder if this one's one that breaks through between streaming and um, and theatrical. I think that as of now, Delroy Lindo is either your front runner for best actor. Or is your um, your biggest point of contention when they forget about him? Because um, this yeah. is a, it is a towering performance by someone who's been around Hollywood, being overlooked, and has been so good in so many Spike Lee movies for so long. Um, it would be amazing if they. I think it'll. You know what I think it'll be. It'll be really interesting to see them reckon with the fact that they like really want to give him best supporting because <laughs> like that's the that's the you know shameless token that the academy likes to hand out when he it's not a supporting performance at all it's no it really is the actor. movie yeah 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 i agree with you i think he's a, a an early front runner here um in a season marked by having no movies come out <laughs> yeah i mean who, who's his competition pete davidson <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's Pete Davidson and Delroy Lindo neck and neck for best actor this year. <laughs> Who would have thought? Um, yeah, so he's either your front runner for um, best actor or gross category fraud come the ceremony. Can't wait. Yeah, but check this one out. I think it's worth your time. Uh, certainly has interesting things to say, even in the last few minutes about the Black Lives Matter movement, too, and its relation to... Uh, this really interesting side of history that I don't think we've seen explored in film to this point. Uh, So there's that urgency to it as well. All right, my friend, I'll talk to you soon. 
Can't wait. Let's talk about some animated critters. Okay. <laughs> 